I'm on the ride of a lifetime. I'm on a ship that's sailing to uncharted shore, and I won't be coming back here. From Salt Lake City, this is Heart of the Matter, where Christian fruits meet with religious nuts, and uh, I'm your host Sean McCraney. I'm standing here with Gaylene. You may have seen her before on the show. She's a she's an old friend and a great fan and a great sister in Christ, and she's grown a few feet because she's eating right and exercising. And uh, anyway, she has an experience she wants to share really quickly with you. Go. Okay, I was able to go up through the Ogden Temple yesterday. I have Mormon relatives that helped me get a pass to go through. And they have a saying where if you want to feel God and Jesus Christ, it's whatever you want to feel in that temple. I did not feel anything walking through there and going through the celestial room and by the audience rooms and then but first we went through the baptismal font room in the basement and I want to share some scriptures after I came back home God pointed me to the Bible and I would like to share some scriptures with you all 1st Corinthians 3 verse 16 know ye not that ye are the temple of God and that spirit of God dwells in you if any man defile the temple of God him shall God destroy. The temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own. Acts 17, 24. God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, nor neither is worshipped with man's hands as though he needed anything seen, he giveth to all life and wealth and all things. I believe God dwells in people's souls that allow them to, not some temple. Thank you. Thank you, Gaylene, mm -hmm. for coming on and being our guest. Yes. You see Seth, and you can get your microphone removed. Uh, because of the amount of information that we have tonight coming from the Bible, let's get right to it. And uh, I want to uh, first thank our uh, staff. And uh, we have some visitors here in the studio audience I haven't seen in a number of years, and even those who I've seen recently. It's good to see all of them. 
And we praise God for the work he's doing in our lives. We pray that his spirit will uh, abide abundantly upon us as we consider things. And as I present, some are going to be right, some are going to be wrong. But let's consider and work these things out uh, as brothers and sisters in Christ. So let's pray. Father, we, uh, we thank you for life and uh, the bountiful blessings that you pour upon us that we don't even recognize or, or see or understand, the protection we have, the protection that you've given us over our families and children and grandchildren and parents. And we pray that your spirit will be with us tonight as we talk more about uh, your word. We pray that your spirit will be with those who are seeking truth, not religion, uh, but a relationship with you uh, to worship you in spirit and in truth. And we pray that the shackles of deception, whatever they may come from, will fall from our eyes. Forget the things I say that are not true, Lord. Help the people will, uh, who are truth, truth seekers remember the things that you say by your Holy Spirit. We thank you for the staff and volunteers and all they do uh, to keep the ministry going. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, the topic is, when does the Bible say Jesus will return? Before we begin, I failed to explain something very important about Matthew chapter 24, verse 6 last week. It plays and will play an important role in understanding what Jesus says and what will be said in our analysis of the rest of the New Testament relative to this topic. In verse 6 of Matthew 24, we read, and you shall hear of wars and rumors of war. Zah. See that you be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end of the age is not yet. This is Jesus speaking to his apostles there on the Mount uh, of Olives, and they asked him the questions, hey, when are you going to come, and these other things, and he says, uh, you will hear wars and rumors of wars, don't be troubled, the time is not yet. Now, there are all sorts of biblical tools out there that we can use to understand the Bible in the original languages. Uh, there are literal, literal versions of the Bible, like Rotherham's, Weymouth's, Young's. There's interlinear uh, versions, and there's something called the emphatic uh, diaglot, which puts the English and the Greek next to each other, and you can compare what the original language says to what the translation says. The word for ye shall, in verse 6, as in, you shall hear wars and rumors of wars is mellow in the Greek, M-E-L-L-O, transliterated into English. And it does not mean you are going to hear many, many years from now of wars and rumors of wars. It doesn't say you're going to hear in thousands of years from now. It means this is about to happen. It means this is going to get started. In fact, if you read either the emphatic diaglot, uh, I mean polyglot, or Rotherham or Young's literal translations, we get a better understanding of what the timing of that passage is. Weymouth's New Testament translation of Matthew 24, 6 has Jesus say, and before long you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be alarmed for such things must be, but the end is not yet. So it's translated in that literal, but before long. Young's literal translation says, and you shall begin to hear of wars and rumors of wars, be not troubled, etc., etc." And the emphatic polygon reads, you are about to begin to hear of wars and rumors of wars. We're going to come back to that word mellow in other verses as we progress through our study of when the Bible says Jesus should return. There are a couple more issues that need to be clear before we continue in this attempt. First, this is by no means exhaustive. Entire 
volume sets have been written about eschatology and Jesus' return and Matthew 24, et cetera, et cetera. Ours is to point out what we believe is the best general picture to that question, just that question, when does the Bible say Jesus will return? I'm not saying or suggesting that I'm a full preterist. I'm not saying that it's all been done. I personally have some views on it. I don't know. There may be a third return. There may be something else. Uh, the end might wrap up with a double meaning from Scripture. I am not commenting on that. All I'm saying is what the Bible says about Jesus' return. Okay? We will start and finish with that. Secondly, I may be incorrect in some, maybe all of my assessments. I will always admit that. Obviously, I don't think I am. And you may differ. That's okay. But at least we're cracking open the topic for discussion. And that's what believers should be able to do with each other is to not have some man stand there and tell you from the pulpit, this is how you have to think to be part of this group. Uh, we all have different ideas on things and uh, men really shouldn't have a say. What is a pastor, even if he has a PhD? What is he if he doesn't have the spirit and if he's been trained and cut his teeth on tradition? He's nothing but a man. And so when we didactically suggest and demand that this doctrine must be believed and echoed throughout the congregation, we're limiting the Holy Spirit and how uh, it works. Uh, the last thing I want to do, though, is, di is divide on debatable doctrines. So I don't care if somebody in our congregations believes uh, in the futurist view or in Trinitarianism or in uh, eternal punishment or any of the things that we've talked about here. It's okay, because maybe they will change or maybe I will. But we're leaving it open to the Holy Spirit to teach us and to continue to read the Word and study and show ourselves approved and be willing to not just lock on to something that we have heard and move forward in teaching. This is, that view is what denominations and churches are built upon certainty. And uh, there's too many variables for certainty in many, many, many areas. Third, I personally do stand on the stance that the Bible is clear on the idea of when Jesus would return. Now, again, that's my view, but I believe it's clear. So there we go. As a quick reminder, we're hitting on what Jesus said in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and we're using Matthew 24 to be the vehicle to explain what he said in Matthew, Mark, and Luke relative to uh, his return. So last week we read the first 14 verses of Matthew 24, and we noted that chapter 24 is Jesus' response to three questions that Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him when they went to the Mount of Olives and, and sat down. They said, tell us. When shall these things be, the things that Jesus had been saying to the Pharisees, the temple being destroyed, when shall these things be, and what shall be the sign of thy coming, and of the end of the world, the King James says. We noted right off the bat that the King James translated a word in Greek to world, which is not world at all. It's not cosmos. The King James translated a work aeon, and it means an age. And so the, the disciples asked Jesus, when, will be this, when are these things going to be? What will be the sign of thy coming? And when will be the end of this age? The age of the Jew. That was the question that was asked. And all you got to do is look at the Greek to see that. So um, 
If speaking of the literal world, the Greek would be cosmos, but it's not. Uh, and so let's read Matthew, skip one of those, uh, Merle, and let's go to, let's read Matthew 24, beginning at verse 15, where Jesus continues to talk and respond to their three questions, okay? After verse 14, Jesus says, then shall the end come. You remember that from last week? That's an emphatic declaration. After that, then shall the end come. And okay, he continues at verse 15. When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet. Stand in the holy place. And there's a parenthetical reference there that says, whoso readeth, let him understand. So think about this, you readers. What Jesus is quoting from Daniel. And then he, Jesus continues and says, then let them which be in Judea flee unto the mountains. Let him which is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house, neither let him which is in the field return back to take his clothes. And woe unto them that are with child and to them that give suck in those days. But pray ye that your flight be not in winter, neither on the Sabbath day. For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not seen since the beginning of the world to this time, Jesus adds, no, nor ever shall be. And except those days should be shortened, there should be no flesh be saved, but for the elect's sake, those days should be shortened. And we'll stop there. All right, let me get a quick hit of water. History tells us no matter how much we want those descriptions to describe our day, that from the mid to early to mid 60s, 60 AD, the Romans attacked Judea and Jerusalem. There were wars and rumors of wars prior to them doing that. By 70 AD, Jerusalem was utterly destroyed, temple included. We know that over a million Jews in that single location were slaughtered and the rest were taken or made prisoners and dispersed out into a diaspora around the world. After describing all these things to his disciples and saying that they would exist, Jesus adds at verse 15, when you, Matthew, I mean, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, when you therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet stand in the holy place, whoso readeth, let him understand. I think it's significant that the Lord in connection with his discussion of the destruction of Jerusalem, referred to a remarkable prophecy that had been given five centuries earlier by the prophet Daniel. Again, this is what Jesus said in verses 15, 16. When therefore you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let him that readeth understand, then let them that are in Judea, flee, them that are in Judea, flee. The dispensational theory, the pre-trib, the futurists have long argued that the abomination of desolation is coming. We've been waiting for the abomination of desolation. This is what they say, that <clears throat> the Antichrist, an alleged world dictator, handsome, full of money and power, will make the temple abominable in the so-called tribulation period just prior to the Lord's second coming. We've been waiting for that. I would suggest they are correct. He, them, it did show up prior to his second coming 
with the tribulation beginning around 60 AD and its culmination ending in 70 AD in Judea. In fact, let's turn to Luke's account and he gives us some added information on how to read this passage. Luke 21, 20 through 21 says, Jesus says here, and when you shall see Jerusalem compassed with armies, then know that desolation thereof is nigh. That's the same word that Daniel used, the abomination of desolation. Jesus pulls from Daniel, and he says, when you see Jerusalem compassed with armies, and when was it? Now we could say, well, it's gonna happen. It's happening now. It's been happening, but it happened then. And he's telling his disciples, when you see Jerusalem and the Roman soldiers gathered around, the desolation thereof is nigh. The Greek word for desolation is erasmosis, excuse me, and it's only used three times in the entire New Testament. Once in Matthew 24, where Jesus answers when he should return, and then in Luke 21 and Mark 13, in the same place, talking about when they asked, when will you return? Again, this is how Luke describes the abomination of desolation to the disciples. Uh, Jesus does in Luke. And when you shall see Jerusalem compassed with armies, then know that the desolation thereof is nigh. He used, his use of that word is purposeful in directly tying it to Daniel. Then the Lord says, let them which are in Judea flee to the mountains and let them which are in the midst of it, Judea, depart out. And let not them that are in the countries enter therein too. This was a major sign Jesus gave to his apostles directly. Something for them to look for and observe for their own well-being and the well-being of his church. It was focused on the people in Judea. Even the Jewish historian, non-Christian, Josephus said relative to Daniel's prophecy in his Antiquities of the Jews, 10, 11, 7, quote, Daniel also wrote concerning the Roman government and that our country should be made desolate by them. So Josephus quotes from the word desolation in his recitation of what Daniel was referring to, and it was referring to the Romans coming in and destroying Jerusalem. This abomination of desolation was something that would happen to them, not something that would happen thousands of years later, but within a time frame of their own lives within that generation, a generation, okay? Now, let me pause here for a second and refer back to that, that uh, uh, issue about generation and what it means. A few people have asked since I did the program last week, where in the Bible does it prove that a generation means 40 years? All right, we know from the Bible that Hebrews reckon time by generations. Let's start with that. In Abraham's day, a generation, according to Genesis 15, 16, was 100 years, okay? And, but when we get to the book of Moses in Deuteronomy, not the book of Moses, sorry, Mormon reference, when we get to Deuteronomy written by Moses, we see that a generation has been redefined to about 38 years, okay? So, and this is, configuration is based on Deuteronomy 135 and 214, for instance, the generation that perished in the wilderness when Moses, when they weren't allowed to go into the promised land, was 38 and a half years. They called it that generation. There are plenty of evidence uh, also in the Bible where generations are upward to 42 years. 
And from what I can tell, the best approximation between the 38 and a half and 42, scholars say that the average idea for generation is 40 years. So they came up with that. What is hard and fast is that biblically, a generation by the time we get to the New Testament was considered 40 years. Now, let me give you another example. If you go to Matthew 1:17, this is what it says. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, and from David until the carrying away unto Babylon are 14 generations, and from carrying away into Babylon unto Christ are 14 generations. If we take that and we look that since the Babylonian captivity occurred in 586 BC, we can divide that by 14 and we get 41, 41 years. So you can do the math going retroactively and see around 40 years is, was a generation. I would suggest that the Bible teaches the standard length of a generation is that amount of time. Then there are those who say, when Jesus said in, uh, in Matthew 24, Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass till all this will be fulfilled. That the Greek word for generation is genia. Okay, remember that. And while it can mean generation, as in 40 years, it can also mean a people type. It can also mean a nation, a, a genia. From that we get genealogy, okay? So it's probably genia. But from generation, we get genealogy, and it can mean a people or a race or a nation, all right? So futurists, dispensationalists, will say, when Jesus said that, this will all come to pass within this generation, he was saying, behold, this people, these Jews, this generation, this genia of people shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. They interpret it that way, all right? Now, I, you, I don't see it that way for the following reasons. First, plainly speaking, generation meant generation, 40 years. Admittedly, you can translate the word to mean a nation or a race of people, but this is not the best way to look at it. The best and the most simple way is the obvious way, a generation. Here's a challenge for you. Take a concordance out, in fact, we'll do the homework for you, and look up in the New Testament every time the word genia occurs. Okay, Here are, here's the references for you on your screen. There's 27 of them. Those are all the references where genia occurs every time. Not one of those references is speaking of a race of people or, uh, or thousands of years or a, a genealogy at all. Every one of those references is the sum total of the people living at that time, their generation. In every case, it refers to contemporaries, not to a race, and not to thousands and thousands of years later. Listen to this. Even futurists, pre-trib, rapturists, and all the other uh, dispensational ideas of the genia theory, they say, who say that in Matthew 24, it means a race of people, they admit that it doesn't mean race. Genia does not mean race anywhere else in the entire New Testament. They'll admit that. The only place it means that is in the Matthew 24 reference to a generation. And uh, so listen to this. When Jesus was in the temple berating the Jewish leaders in Matthew 21, 23, he says to them after he tells them, you're gonna do this, you're gonna do that, it's gonna fall down upon you. He says, all these things shall come upon this generation. Okay, he says that. The futurists say 
that he was talking about the 40-year period of time to them there in Matthew 23. He was talking the 40-year period of time. Then you jump to Matthew 24, where he repeats, all these things shall not pass except the generation comes. And, he's, and they say, it doesn't mean a 40-year period there. It means a race of people. They completely selectively decide when you read, 23 says generation, and they say, yeah, that's a 40-year period. But you come to 24 where Jesus describes when will the end be, and they say no. And it's the only instance in the New Testament where they say it means a race of people rather than a span of time. The selective uh, uh, um, teaching and the picking and choosing reminds me a lot of when I was LDS when we would read the Bible and I started questioning and they would pick and choose and, and you can't really get the full picture. And you know, they have to read it this way and they have to explain it this way because it's the only way that Jesus could have been correct in their view. You see, if Jesus said, verily I say unto you, uh, all this will happen within this generation and it didn't and we're still waiting to them he had to have meant something different. And so therefore Jesus couldn't, or there are some that say Jesus was wrong. They say he didn't know when he was gonna return. God knew, but he didn't. And so Jesus was wrong and the apostles were wrong. I would suggest Jesus knew what he was talking about. The apostles knew what they were talking about. We can read what it says and that is what it's describing. Okay, so move on with me. Then verse 16, Jesus says, let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. Now, by the way, for the Hal Lindsey guys who have been waiting for a nuclear holocaust to come and obliterate us, it's the, escaping to the mountains is not a real effective way to escape radiation. Uh, you know, but nevertheless, uh, let them who are in Judea flee to the mountains, okay? Those are very reasonable instructions for Jesus to give his apostles for that time and within that generation. And then he says, let them which is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house. Neither let him which is in the field return back to take his clothes. All right, that line, let him which is on the housetop not go down and take things out which are in his house. Edersheim, he's a Bible scholar, he mentioned that this is great advice of the Lord to give the people who live in Jerusalem at that time when applied to 70 AD because the houses were flat topped. And they connected with each other and they made a road that essentially you could walk upon, run upon, escape upon to get out of the city while the Roman soldiers were infiltrating in the street. He says, stay on the housetops. You know, what does that have anything to do with us today? You know, we read it and we apply it today. I got a pitched roof. Why don't I stay up there? And, and, and I, I mean, come on. It applies to that time. Add into the fact that when the Romans actually did attack Jerusalem and the Christians read these signs that Jesus had supplied them, they either fled to Pella, which is what uh, uh, Eusebius taught in uh, Ecclesiastical History 3.5. He said they fled to Pella and all escaped or they were raptured. Sometimes I wonder if that's, seriously wonder if that's not what happened to the church at that time. They were taken up and they escaped. I don't know. Then Jesus comes in Matthew 24 and he says, <clears throat> Woe be unto them that are with child and to them that give suck in those days, those women who are breastfeeding in those days. Pray ye that your flight be not in the winter, neither on the Sabbath day. 
knowing all the horrors that were going to go on to these people, it must have tormented the Lord. He, in the Greek, it says when he, when he wept at Lazarus, the scene of Lazarus, it was silent weeping. When he stood over Jerusalem and said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, oh, how I would have gathered you as a chicken. Uh, he was wailing, wailing through his voice, out loud weeping over Jerusalem. He must have been tormented. And he tells these, he says, listen, woe unto them that are with child and that are breastfeeding in those days. Um, by taking the words of Jesus spoke in 1920, verses 19 and 20, let's look at Luke's account, which help, gives us even more insight into what he was saying. Luke 23, 27, 30, it says, and there followed him a great company of people and of women, which also bewailed and lamented him. But Jesus turning to them said, daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming in the which they that say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bear and the paps that never gave suck, the women who never breastfed. Then uh, shall they begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. Okay? Now notice the similarity when Jesus speaks to the daughters of Jerusalem here in Luke and his words here in Matthew 24, 19 to his disciples who said, what will the end times look like? Jesus says, woe unto them that are with child and to them that give suck in those days. Luke's account puts it this way, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bear and the paps that never give suck. Friends, all of this and much, much more fell upon the Jews at Jerusalem in those days. Jesus' words do not describe something that we are waiting to occur. It is not destroying something that hasn't happened for 2,000 years. In the Luke account we read, then shall they, especially mothers it seems, when they shall begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills cover us. Do you know where this is also read? It's, uh, those, that language is used in Revelation chapter six. Speaking of the judgment of Jesus falling upon Israel, John the Baptist wrote, and the kings of the earth, the country, and the great men and the rich men and the chief captains and the mighty men and every bondman and every free man hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks and the mountains and said to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. He's Revelation is quoting the same thing that Jesus said that these women would say at the desolation of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Another instance of Revelation when contextually read speaks to believers then. So then, so there's the explanation of Matthew 24, 19. Then Jesus continues in 20 and he says, but pray that your flight be not in winter, neither on the Sabbath day. Now, obviously this is advice that would have meant a lot anciently uh, when primitive travel during the winter would be harsh and would be difficult. Uh, and, and on the Sabbath day when the city gates were closed, pray that your travels aren't during that day. You won't be able to get out of the city gates. What does it mean today? If it comes today and, and, and it comes during the winter or the Sabbath day, we've got every modern convenience possible. You know, and Sabbath days are not observed anywhere. So verse 21, 22. For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not seen since the beginning of the world till this time, no ever shall be. That sounds like it's futuristic, that's for sure. And except those days should be shortened, there should be no flesh be saved, but for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. Now, we've read about a lot of carnage in the world, uh, World War II, Vietnam, and many others that preceded that, 
and have followed. And was Jesus right when he said, for then shall there be great tribulation such as was not since the beginning of the world. And he uses cosmos here, so he means the entire world. He says there will, be, there will be tribulation that has never been seen in the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. That sounds like, what, Jerusalem, a million people killed? That's the worst that we could possibly see? I don't think so. And so futurists say, that proves we're still waiting for this great tribulation to fall upon us because that certainly wasn't fulfilled. That was just a little destruction of a small city. Again, either Jesus was wrong about this and we have either experienced a great tribulation, world wars, or there's a tribulation that we're waiting for that's going to be worse, or what happened in 70 AD was the greatest tribulation the world has ever seen up to that point before, or Jesus was using a Hebraism to describe it. Let me prove my point. Admittedly, it's a tougher one to explain when we're looking at futurist uh, views of Matthew 24 and today. So let me conclude with some explanations. First of all, the Jews are known for using a uh, I mean, apocalyptic um, verbiage, and they use hyperbole to describe things. It's their way. We find it all through Scripture. Let me give you an example. In, uh, in uh, 2 Kings 18.15, describing Hezekiah, it says, He, Hezekiah, trusted in the Lord God of Israel, listen, so that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor who were before him. So that's speaking of Hezekiah. If you jump to 2 Kings 23, 25, now before him, speaking of Josiah now, there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his might, according to all the law of Moses, nor after him did any arise like him. So we hear hyperbole describing two different ones at two different times, which one's right? It's because it is figurative language that the Hebrews use to describe things. Can Hezekiah and Josiah both be the most devoted kings of Judah of all time? They can't. So the language must be hyperbolic. Uh, Exodus 11.6, listen to this. Then there shall be a great again. Okay, this great cry. Then, way back in Exodus, is it literal? Is it hyperbolic? Ezekiel 5.9 says, And I will do among you that I have never done, and the like of which I will never do again because of your abominations. Was that punishment unlike anything that had ever been done again? Or are we talking about, uh, it can't be both. Uh, how about a few more? Daniel 9, 12. And he has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our judges who judged us by bringing upon us a great disaster. For under the whole heaven, such has never been done as what had been done to Jerusalem. Now you can read that prophetically, or you can read about it as a uh, modern day time, or you can read it futuristically. Here's an even better one. Daniel 12, 1. At that time, Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time, and at that, and at that time, your people shall be delivered. So uh, I admit that there are some caveats in some of those passages where it doesn't completely translate across, but we, I'm using it to show that there's hyperbole there's excitement, there's exaggeration when the Jews talk. Let's skip Joel 2, uh, two Merle. In light of these examples, it's highly possible that the Lord appealed to traditional uh, Hebraic hyperbole borrowed from the Old Testament to describe the destruction of Jerusalem 
in 64 to 70 AD. Another line of thinking is that because Jerusalem is the one that turned from the Messiah, they committed the worst crime, therefore it's the worst punishment. The worst crime equals the worst tribulation for it. And that is a way that you could describe it as being the worst that ever has or ever will be seen. Uh, um, But I wonder if we look at the lack of painkillers, we look at what the Jews were all about in their history relative to cleanliness, we look at their dietary laws, we look at the amount of bloodshed, we look at the carnage and how it was uh, meted out. I wonder if it wasn't the actual worst uh, thing that this world has ever seen. And let me finish with this. A report from Flavius Josephus on the end of that age. Uh, Most of the knowledge that comes about the suffering of the Jews in Jerusalem in 70 AD comes from a man named Josephus. His first uh, name given to him by the Roman Empire is Flavius. Josephus was a Jewish general, and what he did was uh, he was uh, against the Roman government, and he got put into jail. And while he was in jail, a Roman jail, he made a very low-odds prophecy that uh, Vespasian would become the emperor of the entire Roman Empire. And that was very, very unlikely because Vespasian didn't have a sound Roman pedigree. So Josephus is in jail and he says Vespasian is going to be the Roman Empire. I mean, going to be the Roman emperor. And people are like, yeah, right. Okay. Well, nevertheless, two years uh, later, after Nero killed himself, uh, Vespasian was made the Roman Empire, or emperor. And so Vespasian was so impressed with Josephus's prophecy, he brought him out and he commissioned him to be a historian for the Jews. And he renamed him Flavius, Josephus. It's wild. His first work was titled, The War of the Jews. Vespasian had a son whose name was Titus. And it was Titus who went in and led the final march upon uh, Jerusalem to destroy it. And, this, and so uh, Josephus traveled with Titus and he watched firsthand at what happened to Jerusalem in that last year. Josephus still loved the Jews, and so he tried to convince them to turn from their ways, and they had had nothing to do with it, so all he did was sit back and report. First, he notes the starvation. The Jews had enough wheat for a number of years, but because of infighting, that's right, the love of many waxed cold against each other, they destroyed their own supplies. They robbed and slew each other in the most barbarous means imaginable, Josephus says they did as much to themselves as the Romans did to them, okay? The love of man walks cold. Soon, dead bodies were all over the city. The first thing they tried to do was bury them. That was not going to be effectual. And burial in Judaism is so important, but they couldn't do it. So they just started filling the houses up with these corpses and shutting the doors and windows behind it. Before long, they begin to toss thousands and thousands over the wall and down into the valleys below Jerusalem. Josephus writes, quote, When Titus, in going his rounds along those valleys, saw them full of dead bodies and the thick putrefaction running about them, 
he gave a groan and spreading out his hands to heaven, called God to witness that this was not his doing. And such was the sad case of the city itself, end quote. When Jesus said to the Jewish leaders on the Temple Mount in Matthew 23, 33, you serpents, you generation of vipers, how can you escape the damnation of hell? The Greek translation is how can you escape the damnation of Gehenna? It has nothing to do with Sheol, nothing at all. It has to do with a place called Gehenna. He was speaking of their very fate and the reason <coughs> he's saying to those Jewish uh, 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 Pharisees and Sadducees on the Temple Mount, how are you going to escape having your bodies thrown into that valley, uh, into Gehenna, which is located in a place called the Valley of Hinnom, right over the wall, the Valley of Hinnom, where sacrifices anciently took place. And he's saying, how are you going to escape it? It was right there contextually applying to their own time and place. Hinnom was one of those valleys that became full of dead bodies. Anyway, Josephus reported many horrors. For instance, he witnessed a mother snatching a baby from breastfeeding and uh, cut the child, kill it, cut it in half, consume half of the child, and store the rest for later, Josephus says. The starvation was so horrible, he said that the Jews wandered about wishing they could die. The hills, the mountains fall upon us and kill us. He reported they got so desperate for food, they searched the sewers for human waste and cattle waste and ate it, noting that by the law, they weren't even allowed to touch it. Outside the city walls, Roman soldiers caught 500 people on average a day trying to escape the city, and they crucified them all. Josephus says, quote, their multitude was so great that room was wanting for the crosses and crosses wanting for bodies. Listen to Josephus' own words as we conclude today. Neither did any other city ever suffer such miseries, nor did any age ever breed a generation, which was the generation Jesus talked about, more fruitful in wickedness than this was from the beginning of the world. Again, that's either hyperbole or direct uh, literal meaning. He continues, those carried away captive, 97,000. Those who perished, 1,100,000, a large number because the city was full of visitors due to Passover, end quote. We'll continue next week with much, much more, but in the meantime, ask yourself, have you been following the teachings of man and the traditions of Darby and Schofield, which popped up in 1830 and talked about a future thing of Jesus coming and all this rapture and all this stuff? Or do you read the Bible for what it says? That's what it says. Now, I'm not saying an end isn't going to come again, although the Bible never talks about the end of this world. In fact, in seven places, it says this world will never end. What are we to take literally? What are we to take figuratively? We'll continue to work on that. But right now, let's talk about ask yourself. Do these things make sense to you? Let's open up the phone lines, 801-590-8413. 801-590-8413. We'll take a call from Christopher in Evansville, Indiana, and then we'll continue forward. Christopher, you're on Heart of the Matter. Yes, uh, I uh, was looking at my Bible when you were going over some of the Bible verses. Yeah. Specifically, uh, Matthew 24, verse 34. Yeah. Um, before I was a Christian, I would argue that this verse proved that Jesus lied. I, I no longer believe that. Uh, but uh, my Bible has some commentary I just want to read to you. Yeah. 
It says the difficulty raised by this verse cannot be satisfactorily removed by the supposition that this generation means the Jewish people throughout the course of their history, much less the entire human race. Perhaps for Matthew, it means the generation in which he and his community belong. Wow. What, tra what Bible translation is that? It's the uh, New American Bible. Huh. Uh, it's, a, it's a Catholic uh, Bible. They, they, they made it more, uh, more easily readable as, it, as they use modern, uh, more modern words in the I, translation. I see. That, that's a great. I really appreciate you bringing that up. So we have that Bible translation admitting that when it comes to that word, it, 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 in all probability, it's not speaking of a race of people or the whole world. It is speaking of probably the people at Matthew's time when Jesus was speaking. And that was my point the whole time. Christopher, really appreciate it, my brother. Okay. Thanks. Bye. Okay, bye. Listen, um, while the operators are clearing any more calls that may come in, 801-590-8413, uh, take a look. Excuse me. Um, music's a real personal matter. We know that. So is Christianity, in my opinion. But these CDs take the word of God and they put it to some excellent orchestration. And they're great gifts to give to people who are truth seekers, LDS family and friends, because it's all just Bible verses and you get it in their head and the word does not return void. From my friend in Nevada, Jim, he pointed out something very interesting. It's kind of obvious. Actually, you all say, well, duh. But actually... Um, He's gone through some major things in his life as a former very, very active uh, LDS uh, patriarch with all of his family extended throughout the state of Nevada. <clears throat> and he says, an active LDS man discovers the truth about church history. He discovers inconsistencies in doctrine. He sees Mormonism from a clear perspective and he changes his views and he makes them known. The results, he says, in his life and his family, divorce, loss of affection between spouses and children, alienation from extended family members, loss of job, depression, suicide, drug abuse, turning to the world. He then asks, who or what is the cause of this suffering and pain? What, who or what is the cause? The cause is Mormonism. The cause is that institution. The cause is its leaders who continue to propagate a myth and then say, conform to this myth or be cast out even from your family. 
I had a story from somebody in southern Utah the other day who was a high school teacher. He came to understand the truth, and he, he had a great position from what I'm told, and he came to understand the truth of Mormonism, and he went to the principal and said, told him what, oh, stake president, and told him what he had discovered and that he was gonna leave the church. And the state president said, fine, you can do whatever you want. And as he was getting ready to leave, he said, too bad about your job. And the guy later, was within a week, was fired. He was released from being a, uh, a teacher and a coach. I mean, in the small Utah towns, it works like that. So it goes on with religion. The member leaders blame the individual because his or her eyes have opened and they've seen the truth and it's their fault for having seen it. Uh, my friend wants to start a class action suit. I said it's been attempted. We'll see if he uh, continues to proceed. Uh, people continue to uh, hope through emails and conversations that I will return to full focus on Mormonism. Uh, look, that is the focus of this show. This is just an extended version of it. And if you're not seeing that, just let me say it again. I have done the doctrine, the temple, the origins of the Book of Mormon, the gold plates, Joseph Smith's first vision. I've done it. We've done many, many, many hour-long shows on all of that stuff. And it's all archived, it's all online, it's all available. I could continue to, 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 to search for things to strain at, you know, modern-day things. John Dellen is holding a court for him. Or I can just say, that's been done. And then we can say we're gonna to continue to do something more in the Mormon Christian debate, and that is help LDS. I'd like to do, a, I wish, you know, if I had the funds, I'd do a billboard on the I-15 that says, don't be fooled again. Just, just like the Who said, we won't be fooled again. It says, don't be fooled again. Because they come out of Mormonism, and the emails we get, they step into these other places, and they're asked to tithe again, and they're held up to legalistic standards of worthiness, and there are all these other things, and they just get, and they buy into it because they're desperate. They're so lonely for a home church, and they get into it, and they just feel like, gosh, it's the same thing all over again. And so that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to say, look at these things have variables. Look at them, use them. Finally, I want to call out every single brother or sister in Christ who once endorsed us or regaled us with constant platitudes, and 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 tell them they're not one bit different. You know, so many of them have come out from Mormonism. They've embraced evangelical Christianity with all their might. And then when they hear me challenge things like Second Coming or Trinity or these things that are really not laid out clearly, God is ambiguous on these subjects for a reason. He wants us to get along, love each other. He didn't lay it out in black and white purposefully. All of those issues that we dogmatically stand on, but they have clung to evangelical Christianity with all their might, and they have put on blinders and stopped their ears up, and they're going neener, 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 neener when they hear anything else, and now they're just like the Latter-day Saints. That's what you've become, you guys who have, who have left Mormonism, and you've gripped evangelical Christianity with the same fervor. You're cowards. You, 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 uh, you won't stand on your own two feet and think with your own brains that God has given you, you've just swallowed, like you did when you were a Mormon. You swallowed what you were being fed. And you know, I, don't, I think I wanna stand before God and say, I, I searched. And he wants someone who searches for him in spirit and in truth. You think you can just ride on the coattails of tradition fostered by men, and that by that God's gonna say, good job? That's the same mindset that the LDS have, you idiots. 
I'm sorry, but that's the case. And you are so brutally uh, hard on anyone who thinks outside the box. You are so ridiculously hard and say, oh, and you, you, you assassinate characters online. You make, you make fun of my Christianity as if I don't love the Lord Jesus Christ. You talk as I don't know God and that I'm fallen. You give headlines like as if things can't get any worse with Sean McCraney. You know, I'm closer to God now than I've ever been, you rat bastards. I'm just, it's just unbelievable. I'm sorry, but I, I'm sorry for my tongue. I've said I'm gonna calm it down, but it, it's just insane. Anybody who has a little difference, your little collective mindset says, no, conform or be cast out. No, we have the way. You know, what about love? What about someone who thinks differently than you? Someone who loves the Lord. I mean, I just, it's just unconscionable what goes on today. Why don't you guys repent? And I just mean change your mind and back off and close down your, your disgrace book pages and sites and the things that you live off to make a living and, and attacking. Just, sorry. All right, I'll shut up. Oh. <laughs> Don't do that. That is just going to uh, make them say the cult members were in the studio that night. Oh, geez. All right. Last week we posted a graphic and this is what it said. Marnita said Christianity is a wholly subjective relationship between God and the individual, which cannot be defined, dictated, described, or directed by anyone, but God through Christ by the Holy Spirit. Organized religion has absolutely no authority, power, efficacy, or right to insert itself, its doctrines, practices, or demands anywhere into this sacred, subjective relationship. The purpose of brick and mortar church has three, is threefold. One, to serve emancipated, that means people who have been freed by the gospel, emancipated believers by freely teaching the word of God contextually and without bias. To support and encourage individual believers in their respective walk with Christ and to share the Lord Jesus Christ with other people who have yet to receive him by faith. And then we say for all to consider, Christians are saved by grace, through faith, to love, by suffering as Christ. I would politely suggest this approach is a great approach for Christianity today for the following reasons. Uh, we talk about, you know, in, in, in the Christian circles, it's the spirit, the spirit. It's not, it's not we, us who does it, it's the spirit who does it. You know, and yet it, it seems like that's the case until you step in church. And then it's you, you, you who does it. You know, and, and, and so why don't we let the spirit tell individuals how they're going to do anything, how they're gonna participate, what they'll do in their life as a believer, rather than impose upon them the law, because the law kills. So that includes doctrine, that includes tithes, that includes lifestyles. I will let God decide on how he's gonna work with a believer who has problems with lifestyle rather than me getting in there and giving an opinion on what they can do and ostracizing them. Second, the biggest proponents of objective religion is Catholicism and Mormonism. Uh, 
subjective relationship trumps those faulty systems by discounting them altogether. And this is, this is really important. In the Mormon Christian debate, we have stepped into the arena of saying there is a right way to do church. And every denomination has been battling it out and the Mormons have been in there and saying we do it best and they, they look really good. But what Christians should be doing is stay outside of the ring and say that's not Christianity at all. It's built of believers who the spirit, where God has written his law upon their hearts and upon their minds. There's no reason a single believer would get in there and fight with Mormonism of whose church is better. It's all about relationship. But when we step and we use the New Testament as the new law to bludgeon people with and tell them this is how it has to be done, we enter into the arena with Catholicism, with Mormonism, and Lutherans and Baptists and all the denominations and say, this is how it says we should do church. This is how we say it should do church. And it's just not even applicable. Christians should stand outside of the ring and say, that's not church. Church is the individual believer. <coughs> the method also endorses liberty in Christ, allowing individuals to relate and express their faith to God as led. We've noted that there's no theological exam when you enter heaven. You're not going to be asked about end times or, or yeah. Trinity or baptism mode or world flood or any of it. You're gonna be known by your heart for Jesus and the love, the love that you showed for other people. All right, I'm sorry, but I don't have my glasses on, I didn't see this. We have a caller in Birmingham, Alabama. Birmingham, you're on the air. Brother Sean Gadeen, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing well, how are you? Pretty good, pretty good. You know, you're a powerhouse listening to you tonight, and I, I don't wanna, I don't want to go your head or anything. Yeah, well. But, uh, <laughs> you know, Brother Sean, sometimes you, you, you really, sometimes you really disappoint me because you, you're, you're, you, you, you're self-defeating. <laughs> You are. Sometimes you, you, you're so hard on yourself, and you it, it discourages me sometimes to, to hear you say things like how much bigger the Mormon church is than you and how much more effective they are because they got all this money, et cetera, et cetera. And what you don't realize is that greater is he that is in you than he that is in Mormonism, the world. Thank you. And you're right. you've got to understand, and, and I, I, I left this on your uh, ministry uh uh, phone number, whatever, a couple of years ago, and I don't know, it probably never got to you. But anyway, I was just led to to tell you that you may not realize it, but you're Sam, you're a modern day Samson, and <laughs> and you've got the ability, and it's in your future if you just keep at it, to bring down the Temple of Dagon. Well, the one thing that you've got to do, you're being mocked right now, like all, like all those people mocked Samson when he was in the temple. And the one thing that you're, that you're going to stumble onto, hopefully pretty soon, is that little boy that's going to lead you to the pillars. Now, I don't know who that little boy is or when he's going to come along, but I'm telling you, when that little link falls into place for you, you're going to be able to bring down the temple of Dagon because you're blessed by God more than you realize with the energy and disposition and powerhouse you are to do some incredible things, my brother. LaVon, you're very nice. I, it's all God. I truly am. I, I'm self-effacing because uh, in my flesh, I am truly a jackass. I mean, I can't even breathe up here. I'm such a powerhouse. 
you know, uh, I just, but I appreciate your comments. They are encouraging. And, uh, oh, you're a powerful jackass then. So there, be it. Hey, that's okay. There you go. That will take, my brother. That will take. I love you, brother. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Right, Bye-bye. We, we have someone who called in and said the Bible makes so much more sense when we see that Jesus already came. Uh, I know a woman that is afraid to have a child because she thinks we are in the end times and of what Jesus said in Matthew. And really, if you are a futurist and you are, you really, people really shouldn't be getting pregnant because Jesus said, woe to them that are with child or that are breastfeeding at that time. So if you really believe the times are imminent, people probably shouldn't be getting pregnant because Jesus does says this. So the woman at least is taking Jesus' word seriously. I think she's just a little misdirected. That's our, my opinion. Next week, we're gonna continue to talk about what the Bible says when it says Jesus would return and we'll continue on from there. We love y'all. We appreciate your, your prayers and support. God bless you. I'm on a ride, going nowhere. I am an existential cowboy on the wind. And I won't be coming out, I'm going in. This man's awake. A storm's arising, the dawn's awaiting till the 